Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Uh, if you like what you hear, then we highly recommend, if you have an iTunes account, to go on there and rate our show. Every review helps in terms of getting us to a wider audience, and also we just like the feedback. Also, if you want to support our show, you can do so two ways. Uh, the first, you can you can contribute to Andrew's own Patreon account over at his website, Can't Stop the Movies. Uh, it's for as little as a, a dollar a month. You get a whole bunch of extra content that he works on, which is great, and it also helps him with the production costs for for this show and the episode artwork that you see all over social media that we post. Also, you can donate to the Modern Superior Patreon account, and they're the network that hosts our show. I believe the minimum is like $2 for, for literally a total of $3, which is cheaper than a Happy Meal. You can support great artistic content. Now, before we introduce our special guests for this particular episode, I personally just want to take a quick moment to plug two events that are happening here in Toronto this coming week. The first one is the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival, which runs from November 3rd to the 11th. It's a festival that likes to focus on films that highlight issues and like it talks about the various facets of mental illness and mental health issues. So it's it's a wonderful festival and it's worth checking out. And the second is TIFF is running the Black Star series, uh, which celebrates 100 years of black contribution to cinema from November 3rd to December 22nd. So they're showing a whole slew of films, everything from silent films like Body and Soul with a live jazz pianist accompaniment to In the Heat of the Night, the Imitation of Life. Heck, if you like the new version of Annie, they got that. Coming to America, you want some laughs? They've got that. So Ava DuVernay's Middle of Nowhere, there's tons of, of great titles to see. So again, those are two events that are starting this week and well worth checking out. Finally... What we really want to get to, and I'm, I'm really actually, I'm very excited about this. I've been <laughs> waiting for this episode for a couple of months, but our guest today is Kristen Lopez, a wonderful and talented film critic who our regular listeners will remember from episode 21 when we discussed Wonder Woman. She was not only kind enough to return to the show, but also she was the inspiration for our discussion in this episode and the next episode. And this month, we're focusing on the portrayals of disability in cinema. Kristen, the last time you were on the show, you had just interviewed Sofia Coppola. I think you were prepping to interview Colin Trevorrow. And since then, I believe you met Oscar Isaac. So can you just bring our listeners up to speed on what's happening in the awesomeness that is your life? <laughs> you know, this year has been really bizarre for me. Like everything just has like exploded for me in 2017. I, I hope that means that there's only good things and there's not like a horrific end awaiting me once the year is over. I got to go to New York, got to see Hamlet, got to meet Oscar Isaac. That was great. I get to go to AFI in a couple weeks. I am all over the place just writing and reviewing things and get to occasionally interview people. Um, I, I don't know, making money in the process. I, I have no idea how this all happened. <laughs> so you're living the dream is what you're saying. I'm living the dream. It could be bet in terms of, like, I, I would love, like, a regular paycheck where I get to do all this. And, like, maybe health benefits would be nice. But, I mean, you know, it's outside of the adult stuff that you really don't worry about when you, when you quote, unquote, want to live the dream. I mean, other than that, I'm definitely, uh, I, I'm pretty sure people assume that my life is more glamorous than it is. <laughs> 
Well, we're definitely living vicariously through you. And you're going to AFI Fest, and I believe you have a GoFundMe page set up for that. Do you want to promote that? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to AFI. This is the first year I've done it. Uh, I've never gone before. I've always wanted to, and it just never seems to be at the right time. And this year I decided, well, let's see if I can get press credentials and I'll figure out little things like money if I get them. And it turns <laughs> out I did. So I, I very quickly had to book a hotel and travel was very expensive on the last minute. So I am uh, currently raising money to defray travel costs. I'm going to the event regardless. This is just going to help me um, stay out of debt in the process. So you can definitely learn more. I have some great little perks as thank yous for people that donate. So you can go to GoFundMe.com slash SendKristen, that's K-R-I-S-T-E-N, to AFI. Excellent. And we'll be sure to link that also in our show notes for those who are checking us out via any website that we are promoting our show on. So we normally like to start by discussing a feature film, or at least two feature films that are available online. So Andrew, explain what you picked for us this week. Gladly. Um, and boy, Courtney, pre-podcast, had said that he was uh, dealing with a cold, and, and Kristen comes in with her energy as well, and I'm feeling like a slug compared to you two. So I'm going to try and uh, zap things up a bit with some lovely claymation, one of my favorite animated forms. But the pick that I had was Cousin, and it's directed and done all sorts of ways by Adam Elliott. It's, it's fairly short. It's about three, four minutes long. It is nostalgia. Like, nostalgia is something that gets a bit overused these days, but it's almost always in reference to, you know, some BuzzFeed list or some product that's being brought back. But I love how this captures the feeling of wistful longing for a relationship or a connection that maybe you didn't appreciate as much as you had when it was there. As he's discussing his time with his cousin, who had cerebral palsy, aside from the, the obvious disability connection with our overall theme that we're going to be discussing this month, it felt familiar. I obviously don't have anything nearly as overwhelming or immediately noticeable as the cousin but especially in the part in the short where the cousin's mom to calm him down tells him to go make a cake it's that simple repetition of ritual creating something to put out into the world it's just a cake but you're still in that act of creating that made me feel really strongly connected with the cousin because i had to work on grounding techniques and, and meditation and stuff to get my own mental abilities under control. And even the same thing with not feeling completely in control of your body. It made me feel so connected in a way that few shorts have recently to the point where I was, I was like almost like physically feeling this nostalgic reaction to it. See, I, I took it a bit I don't know. I, I feel like I took it a bit less positively. It felt very melancholy to me, that concept of when you're a small child, you remember people as these very ebullient, likable people. And then as you look back as an adult and you realize that they have flaws and that they weren't nearly as perfect. Uh, you know, this, this short features childlike hijinks and all of that, but it also looks at the fact that, you know, there was tendencies towards violence and there were obvious things that he wasn't really, that the narrator isn't aware of as in the moment as a child, that as an adult, you come to realize that this is a person that was very troubled and led a life of 
of severe difficulty, and it's the narrator's attempts to reconcile the two halves of this person that's been shaded by time. It was, in that regard, kind of bittersweet. I think bittersweet is the perfect word for it, because that's what I, I felt. I enjoyed this one. And I guess is this is the same director who did Mary and Max? Yes. Okay, because the animation style looked very similar to that, and I felt that there was a lot of moments that made me smile, and the fact that the cousin, even though the cousin was going through so much, was still not one to be taken advantage of. Like, there's that great scene where he basically breaks the bully's finger or something to show that he's not going to be pushed around lightly. But by the end of it, and especially that final scene, I thought was very bittersweet, and I wasn't sure how to take that final moment like you know the whole i see him and i hope he's happy but i i'm not gonna confront him about it it's like well are you afraid to confront him like you're showing me some fond childhood memories that for better or worse really had an impact on you but then they weren't strong enough for you to connect older even though people drift apart but i don't know family even if you drift apart and you see someone you haven't seen in a long time you still want to kind of reconnect and get her a better understanding of them, but I ultimately enjoyed the film. I think it has a lot of great moments to it. Love the animation, love the humor, but I think bittersweet is the perfect way how I felt in terms of, sorry, the perfect term to describe how I felt after seeing the film. Yeah, and Kristen, you're very much spot on with melancholy. One thing about me, especially, melancholy is kind of like my default state. It's hard for me to get excited about a lot of things, and while I tend to be optimistic, I, I also tend to carry maybe way too much weight on my shoulders than I should, so melancholy is kind of a weird thing, because this short is definitely melancholic. I, I do not disagree with you at all there. There are aspects of it, like Courtney, when you mentioned the finger breaking that's gonna be a really personal thing for me but i kind of wanted to go hell yes when that happened because way too often we get in these situations where people take advantage of you or they feel free to mock you and i know that's kind of a deep end conversation too because then that depends on you know what you feel is appropriate as far as responses you know was physical violence really needed there or not and that's why I think it is so complicated to talk about this and, and kind of the emotional affect that it has. It is bittersweet, it is melancholic, it is nostalgic all at once. And I think it really is difficult to reconcile all of those things together, which, bringing it to the end, since uh, Adam was relating a personal story about his own family, is probably why it doesn't end so neatly. Because it was tragedy that took his cousin out of his life. His parents, uh, the cousin's parents, died in a car accident. That, again, not really nostalgic. And it's not great, but it does fit in more with melancholy. So there's a spectrum of emotions here. And I think the dulled color palette is what lends itself this not quite happy, not quite sad, not quite angry state that, that, that we're in for the whole shore. The actual claymation is is looks very, you know, crude, almost like a child is formulating it, which I think really enhances that nostalgic tone because it almost feels like it's from that perspective in that moment. Being selfish again, I guess that's how it's so quiet in the intro. But it it also reminds me, I used I toyed around with clay for a really long time when I was younger and having my own troubles and so on. So even the shape of the characters, it feels very reassuring 
to me. Like I, I look at them and I already feel like that kind of connection. But yeah, considering the crudeness and it's it's almost like the sad Charlie Brown esque underbelly of something like Wallace and Gromit in terms of like the overall uh, production and affect. Yeah, and it's interesting though because I was just thinking back to the comment about the animation looking as if like a, a child had done it in the crudeness. The one thing that I liked about the film is when he was looking back to it as as a young child, he I got the sense he was almost in awe of his cousin in a positive because there's a there's a moment where he talks about how he always thought that his cousin was spoiled just because he got to do all these cool things and got to dress up as a superhero and what have you and it got me thinking just of like my own kids and how when you're really young you just tend to play and associate with whoever's around right and regardless of if someone has a disability it's not really a factor. You, the children just seem to make it work. It's only, you know, as you start getting older and people start putting history and parental, not, not values, but um, stereotypes and whatnot, that's when things start to really get bad. But there's a certain innocence to childhood that I thought was a nice little touch to this. Well, and to kind of show the other side of that, having been raised with siblings myself, it's easy to, you know, understand the resentment that can come from believing that a disabled sibling's life is easier or that there's a distinction there in terms of how they're treated. And, you know, I I have personal experience on that regard. It was in those moments, I really started to feel like I understood both sides of the story. But it does give you that, especially in my perspective, you kind of turned against the narrator. At least I did a little bit because he he Mm -hmm. he has to reconcile with the fact that, well, why did he feel that way? And is that necessarily fair? It's not fair to either of them. But there's a difference that makes his perception of the unfairness weaker than probably what the... And, and that's why, I, you know, the, the movie is telling you a very specific perspective. Because it's not telling you the perspective of the actual disabled person. You know, you're kind of left to interpret whether the chain of events, you know, the, the reliableness of the narrator at all. Oh, that's true. Yeah, and I think that's why the ending is so effective. It it almost feels like there's this wave of shame coming over him, that he's having these memories and these recollections, but he can't reconcile this idea of privilege that he actually has. Or at least he's starting to reconcile that, and he's feeling bad that he was viewing all of these events as someone who had something extra or was able to do things in life that he wasn't able to when, as a kid, he wasn't really able to recognize those things. And then now, as an adult, it's like he can't even bring himself to face his own childhood or face something from his own childhood. There is something shameful about that and i completely agree with you Kristen. like at that that point toward the end it felt like kind of a faux liberalism almost like he is right on the edge of recognizing these problems and what he personally has benefited from and even being able to tell this story as opposed to his cousin and what his cousin went through yeah, it, it shows the limits, and it's why there needs to be more people with unique experiences writing and, and helming cinema, because really, when the ending of the short arrives, it's literally the limits of his experience. He can't go any further without having to make up this fiction about his cousin, and so it, it really leaves you 
to ponder the limits of most able-bodied people's thinking when it comes to disability that's very finite. Your experience only goes so far if you've never talked to anybody with a disability. And then even then, your experience only goes a little bit further actually interacting with them and, and dealing, you know, living with them and, and dealing with the issues that come up. And that's why you need actual disabled people writing and directing because that furthers the conversation even more. And I think we're going to have a lot to say about that when we get to save. But on that note that you just left us on, I think that'll be a perfect segue into your short, Courtney, because I want you to tell us a bit about it. And then, Kristen, I'm very curious on your thoughts here. The short film I picked is entitled Whole, and it's by Martin Ed Rollin. It's from 2014. The reason I actually picked this film is the lead actor, Ken Hauer, is a individual who I discovered this year at the Toronto International Film Festival. He was in a Canadian film called Look Looky. It was a film about set in Vancouver during the 2010 Olympic Games, and it followed like five individuals whose lives, I guess you could say, is downtrodden as they kind of intersect and what have you. I wasn't a fan of the film. It did win Best Debut Canadian Feature at TIFF, so heck, what do I know? But I will say, of the five stories, the one involving Ken Hauer and there was another story, those were the two that I was captivated with the most. And there was something about his performance that I found interesting. So when I stumbled across this one, I was intrigued by it. And the premise of this film is uh, Hauer plays a man by the name of Billy, who is going about his daily life, you know, he's got a job, whatnot, but he's seeking intimacy, and especially physical intimacy. Yeah, this was probably one of the more unique short films that I've seen. A, kudos for actually showing disabled people's day-to-day <laughs> newsflash. It's very boring. <laughs> and I, I think that that says a lot right there in terms of wanting to showcase this concept that disabled people, I, I think a lot of assumptions that mostly come from cinema that perpetuate this idea that disabled people have this easy life about them that because most disabled films in mainstream Hollywood don't focus on things like finances, there's the assumption that we just live off the government, we have a lot of money. And here, the main character lives a very simple life, he kind of works at like a Walmart type job, doesn't have a big house. The only luxury, I guess you would say, quote unquote, is that he has somebody who comes in and takes care of his daily need in terms of like bathroom and all of that it really showcases how unglamorous it is you know i think that there's a lot of false assumptions about how being on disability is easy street and this shows that that's far from the case so i just in terms of the day-to-day showing a disabled character who is not living in a, a mansion just that element is refreshing i think that whole with this short, it's a much more empathetic look than Cousin, which is admittedly more sympathetic because, as you had said, Kristen, Cousin can only go so far since it is the non-disabled director's account of his experience with a disability in his family and from childhood. Whereas here, the mundanity of it was compelling. It's weird sometimes when we take certain physical actions just for granted in movies and this may go to what you were talking about about just seeing something so normal 
on screen because I really liked this guy. At the very end, well, close to the end, I guess one of the triggering moments for the end when he's just listening to classical music and getting drunk. He was compelling to me just in those tiny moments. And I don't think that we would have gotten as an encompassing look at his personality if there was some traditional dramatic structure. Yeah, it's one of the things that I really hate about mainstream disabled narratives in cinema, that the concept of disability allows you to issue conflict. Being disabled is the conflict. Being disabled is the character. Being disabled, like, it, it allows screenwriters to negate all of the screenwriting techniques that they have. <laughs> yeah. Because they assume that that is just so all-encompassing. It's why we don't get disabled movies that aren't based on true stories. Because the assumption is that a disabled person who lives a day, a, an average life is not compelling. And I would retort with, well, what was necessarily compelling about selling three movies about two people walking around Europe all day talking? And yet the performers (laughs) are beloved. And those movies don't have any sort of structure. So watching this movie, which does have a conflict a bit, showing a different perspective and that the average disabled person is literally no different than you. We don't want to be perpetuated as these like magical, holy things that live a life of perfection that's above you. You know, that's not at all what the intention is. And so much of wanting to be properly represented in film is seeing just the boring bullshit of of your day-to-day <laughs> life. I mean, and, and creating a conflict that has nothing to do with being disabled. In this short especially, the conflict has everything to do with being disabled, and it also has nothing to do with being disabled. It's a universal thing, this need for connection, this desire to be a sexual person. You can see that in any romance movie. It has nothing to do with disability, only in this instance, it's the subtleness of the fact that it has everything to do with it because of how society, the 99% view that 1% or the 5, I think it's it's 5% of America has disabled people in it. I could be wrong on my statistics. I'm not going to fact check you. The only thing I'm going to say, what highlights this one shot, exactly what you were just saying, and it's probably my favorite shot slash cut in the entire short, is when Billy is putting things away at his Walmart, Kmart-esque store, and it just closes in on his hands touching the ceramic, putting the ceramic away, and then the next shot is cut to two people holding hands. What you had said there, when it has like everything and nothing to do with disability all at once, almost every lonely person who has some kind of store job is going to understand that cut, they're going to understand that jump between cold ceramic and just wanting to feel warmth, wanting to feel that kind of connection. I know we're kind of dominating the discussion on on your short, Courtney. I don't think you guys are dominating at all. I think everything you guys are saying is is wonderful because some of the points that you were raising is the reasons why I chose this one. And one thing that I know Kristen has done a lot in her advocacy for better representation in cinema is She's called out films, film critics, you know, who tend to fall for the whole inspirational theme. And I, I admit, I've fallen for that a couple of times myself, being suckered in by those type of narratives. And even when I was looking for shorts that had a disabled person in the, or person with a disability in the lead, they all ended up being like, this person couldn't walk, but she found a way to surf, you know, and it's like, <laughs> well, okay, that's, that's cool. But like, it would have been fine if it was just one or two, but they were all kind of like that. I didn't find yeah. any that talked about relationships or sexuality. And when I came across this one, I was like, huh, this is very interesting because you don't get that 
especially from when you talk about your Before Midnight trilogy is a perfect example where you can have characters walk and talk aimlessly all day. You know they're probably going to have sex at some point and everyone's fine, right? It's like, well, why don't we ever see films with people who have whatever disability still being sexual, still being human. And that's one thing that really caught me about this film. The sexuality angle in this short, it's why I say it's the nature of, of disability. I mean, there are so many universal things that connect with people. It's why I don't understand why Hollywood has such a hard-on for telling these inspirational type of stories because they're very closed off. The intention is not to relate, but to act as cautionary tales, as I, I argue. And this short especially is talking about how the desire to want to be a sexual person, that's something that anybody feels, whether you are a 15-year-old girl in high school or a 70-year-old elderly person in a wheelchair. I mean, it's universal. And here, you know, there's a really great critique and sadness of how we treat disabled people when it comes to sex. And the fact that Billy has to go to these kind of anonymous places that are effectively glory holes in order to derive any type of sexual pleasure. It's a very closed off, isolated room. And it just makes you, especially if you're disabled, reminds you of how as a society, we want the disabled to be closed off. You know, if they're not convinced Conventionally normal, quote unquote, proportions are different. If you if you aren't verbal, society doesn't know how to act around you. They don't want to see you. They want to keep you confined. And when it comes to sexuality, there is none. When it comes to being disabled, the assumption is is that you're childlike or you're at least not sexual. He does have these interests, and the fact that it seems that there's obvious implications. You know, I, I can't even imagine being disabled and being gay. That's on top of it. Sexuality is so fluid nowadays and how do you rectify that with already having people look down on you and, and not assuming that you're a sexual figure so at the end when he has to kind of ask his caretaker can you allow you know help me reciprocate and experience you know sexuality it's all kinds of awkward not just because it's having to have a third person in there with you but just the knowledge that you have, to, you know, having to put yourself out there for somebody. I mean, that's a universal thing. That's something that we should be seeing more of with disabled people, not perpetuating this idea that Andrew Garfield's all hot and has a six pack and then he gets hobbled with disability. But thank God he married a hot girl beforehand so she can't run away. I mean, there's so much that's just so screwed up about how relationships are presented in mainstream Hollywood narratives about disability and sexuality is part and parcel of Ignored, or at least negated with the fact that if the male, because it's usually men in these movies who are dis disabled, if they can't experience anything, then there's just no reason to live. <laughs> I, I think that's fine as a closing note. I have nothing to add to that. No, I think it's a great point. But one thing I will add is there is a, well, it's a, it's a documentary short that I saw earlier this year called Picture This. It was a film that talked about the gay experience with disability. Um, I was actually thinking of trying to find that, but it's not, I don't believe it's online yet. So I think it's still making the festival rounds. And you get both the male and female perspective as well. There's still a lot of challenges, but at least that's one film. And hopefully, I'm hoping we'll see a whole lot more that will branch out into that angle as well. We're going to take a quick break to change the reels. And then when we come back, we're going to get to our discussion on the film Saved. Our 
Our feature film this week is a 2014 comedy Saved by Brian Dennelly. The film centers around Mary, a student at American Eagle Christian High School, who mistakes an accident in the pool as a sign from God that she needs to help save her boyfriend, Dean, who has recently admitted that he's gay. The way that she can save him is by losing her virginity to him. Things obviously don't go as planned. Dean is shipped away to a conversion therapy-like school, and Mary discovers that she's pregnant. Now, Andrew, before you recount your brief time as the number one Christian interior decorator, tell us why you chose this film. Well, for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, I would end up being pot committed to Saved. I actually did not intend for this to be my pick. It was kind of just tentatively in there. And then the time came, and once I got the message from you, Courtney, I was like, oh crap, I never changed that. So... That said, I love this movie. I think it's absolutely hilarious, but on the topics of disability and representation of disability, I think that we've got a lot of room for a lot of criticism here, and some positives kind of building on what we've been discussing already. Um, But pot committed is a term in poker, when you have put so much money into the pot that now even if your once strong hand is weak, It's more worth it for you to just see the cards through to the end instead of folding. So instead of folding and admitting that my tentative pick for save was an accident, I figured, you know what? This movie is hilarious. It touches on a lot of things that I hate about the Midwest. It touches on a lot of things that I like about it, too. I think it is overall an extremely respectful conversation about faith. And then on the disability angle, Macaulay Culkin, obviously, dude's not in a wheelchair in real life. But there are aspects to his character and his representation that I don't really see ever. So Saved ended up being my tentative pick from a pre-podcast conversation with Kristen last time when we were talking about Macaulay Culkin's character and her then hatred of Me Before You, which I can now join in on. That movie is wretched. So I figured for once, instead of a movie we can maybe all agree on as having positive qualities everywhere, I like now that (laughs) that my pot is committed to saved, because I love it, but I do think there are a lot of things that we could critique about it. I remember seeing Saved when it came out in the theaters, and I live in a very suburban area that has only gotten more white, Christian, gun-centric in the last couple of years. So this was a movie that I found a lot of joy in terms of, I know people, you know, like that. They believe they have this kind of firsthand route to God, and then they use that to lord over other people. And so uh, the faith-based element as a satire of, like, Christian schools and these overzealous Christianity, it works. It works in a way that something like Easy A didn't really pull off with their depictions of Christianity, where it just comes off as, like, their Stepford people. You know, this at least tries to create characters that are relatable outside of being religious. With that being said, Macaulay Culkin doesn't necessarily bother me in terms of the fact that the script is trying to perpetuate something about disabilities. But at the same time, it's hard not to ignore some of its flaws in that area. You know, the fact that Macaulay Culkin isn't disabled. And when this movie was promoted, I want to say that this was promoted because Macaulay Culkin had taken some time off 
acting. And it wasn't necessarily that he was portraying a disabled person. There are some fun things that it does in terms of trying to look at how disabled access works, how limiting it is. But it's really cursory and doesn't feel like it's necessarily plotted with him in mind. It's mostly plotted with the grander film in mind. And there's an ending moment a kind of a literal come to Jesus moment that he has that I didn't necessarily buy, but it does not leave me nearly as mad as other movies. <laughs> Definitely want to find out about that come to Jesus moments. Cause my, my memory is not clicking in. I forgot how much I enjoyed this film. I loved the dialogue. I was laughing a lot through this, almost as if I was watching again for the first time, even though I'd seen it a few times before. When I saw it as your pick, Andrew, I will admit my first instinct was, is there a disabled character in that film? When I think of this film, I don't think about the disability aspect of it, right? And I think that partly goes to what Christian is saying in terms of, yes, he's disabled, but I didn't really feel like he was a fully realized disabled character. He was just a character that was had slightly more lines than someone like Veronica. But I did find his relationship with Cassandra charming. And if you look at it from a faith aspect, then it's a really great satire. I think it still works. Jenna Malone, I'm a fan of pretty much anything she does, so it's always great. And Mandy Moore also surprised me in this film. I remember the first time seeing it, and then watching it again now, I'm like, she was really good. And I don't know what's happened to Patrick Fugit. He's kind of around, but... <laughs> Well, he's one of those actors that I, I think we call agree. I think when Almost Famous came out, like everyone was like, he's going to be the next b- big thing. And then his career has kind of taken a weird path where he's almost been, he's now like the slowly that supporting character actor that's, that's pops, he pops up, but he's not the leading man that everyone was hyping him up to be. So it wouldn't initially pop to mind for me when, if, if I had to make a list of films with characters that have disabilities. This is definitely one of those movies that, because it was promoted as the satire and this teen comedy, I know a lot of people who saw this that I wouldn't have expected to when I was growing up. And a lot of people assumed I would be, you know, like, obviously, representation. This is it. Like, we fixed it. We got a character here who isn't a saint, who is who doesn't die at the end, who isn't the tiny Tim. And in that regard, yes, it's very true. It's funny now how many people, when I bring up representation of disability in cinema, will quote this movie. For good and ill, I had I have had friends who have said, oh, well, you should just take Macaulay Culkin's idea to be a roller skate for Halloween and, and do that. And I had to be like, no, stop. Don't say that to me again, ever. The cast is great. The cast is great. I, I, Jenna Malone, A, never ages. And B, is just so charming <laughs> in this movie. Um, this was during Mandy Moore's period of trying to situate herself as something more than a wholesome actress. So she ended up playing bitches a lot in, in movies. So she did this and like Southland Tales and a couple other things. I've met Mandy Moore. I met Mandy Moore when she was doing her first album tour. She visited like Tower Records and FYE stores in the late 90s. And I met her one time. She couldn't spell my name, but she seemed very sweet. So I think she's really good. Macaulay Culkin's solid, but mostly I look at his performance in terms of my own experience because it's hard not to. Because the movie does situate a lot of things that do feel relatable to me personally. The idea of wanting to be independent and wanting to go out and do things and not being able to whether because you can't drive. And I'm not saying can't drive is and not have a license. I like, can't physically drive. That's definitely difficult. Or just the concept of having to feel like you owe 
people stuff because they're doing things for you, especially his sister, who pretty much utilizes her Christianity and the fact that she drives him around as a means of perpetuating the stereotype that she is the pious one. If anything, this movie does play with the concept of instead of perpetuating the disabled person as the saintly one, it's the, you know, sanctimonious religious person that is his sister that wants to be promoted as this saintly figure. And his relationship with the Cassandra character is cute, even though it's implied that it's sexual, but it's still pretty chaste in the grand scheme of things. It's hard not to connect certain things like the argument that he has with his sister about if I didn't drive you around, where would you... In China, they would have killed you at birth. And she asks him, well, where would he be? And he says, in China. I mean, that's snarkiness. <laughs> like, that's that's me. <laughs> the snark in this is, is powerful. Macaulay Culkin does do the lion's share of the snarking in all of his scenes, like when he's playing wheelies with Cassandra. But that's a really interesting point that you brought up about how it's implied that... They have sex and then they outright say it at the end when she tells him, and here I was thinking that you were just in that for the sex. And he's like, well, you know, that's nice too. Looking at the film overall, yeah, I mean, they have kind of a dirty naughtiness to their dialogue and being around each other, but I think they share like one kiss on screen in the entire movie. So that's a good point on how this movie plays with people's memories differently. And it is important to note that the movie still perpetuates a lot of stereotypes. I've noticed that a lot of comedy about disability tends to be putting self-deprecating humor in disabled people's mouths. So like the wheelies line, I kind of cringe every time I hear it because I'm like, at least in my experience, I talk in terms of walking just because it's what's common to everybody else. So the concept of him having to inject and remind people that like oh he doesn't walk but then that's punctuated by my favorite moment where we'll dance for food <laughs> yes yes i haven't done that in terms of like actually putting up a sign but i have said that to people and they don't know how to respond to it but to my criticism it does promote some of the things that i was just praising the short for doing which the fact that they can afford a fully tricked out handicapped van to drive him around in those are not cheap the fact that his family is still white, upwardly mobile. Even Cassandra getting the hand control to put in her car, I had to crowdfund for mine because that's not a cheap process at all. And she could totally get in trouble if that's not listed on her lesson. That's not necessarily detrimental to the story because the point of the film is to show white, affluent Christianity. But when you're dealing with a disabled character, it is hard not to see it as playing into what most people assume disabled characters deal with, which is that they don't deal with financial issues. That is true. I want, I want to just quickly jump back to the sexual but chase reference, because I think everyone in it has sex on the brain in some sort, whether it be the parents, Pastor Skip, or uh, Veronica, where they make references to things that happen, but obviously nothing ever gets shown, because they talk about Veronica giving someone oral sex at one point, or when I think one of the scenes where she, she was talking about trying to keep her virginity by other types of sex, but I think they still try to keep it somewhat PG to keep with the whole teen comedy mean girls thing. So that thing didn't really stick out as a big issue to me. I still thought it was funny. I, I do agree, though, that it is the portrayal of the affluent 
white Christian, and that's essentially what they're satirizing, and also our weird preconceived notions of what being a good Christian means and entails. And you have pretty much everyone except for Cassandra and Macaulay Culkin's Roland that are essentially living a fraudulent life. They're all trying to pretend to be these ideals and standards that no one could achieve, and Hillary's trying to be the queen of which the sex being chased didn't bother me because I took it as most of these teen comedies in general outside of like American Pie were all fairly chastened, you know, their quote unquote risque humor. Calkin, his character, as much as I love the snark, isn't the best representation. And I wouldn't even hold him up as, you know, one of the, the better ones. I think he's fine representation, but not I'd put him middle of the pack if I had to like list of disabled characters in cinema. He's he's not where yeah, he could he, be. He could definitely be better. It could be far worse. And the thing that I appreciate is the knowledge that somebody might have done some research. Little things like it's a custom wheelchair. You would not believe how many movies think they're getting away by just slapping a person in a big bulky hospital wheelchair and calling that progress. And as I keep saying to people, stop doing that in movies because there is not a disabled person on this planet who is going to spend 24-7 of their day sitting in a hospital wheelchair that has no support. Their back would be bloody by the end of it. There's a scene where he essentially goes off a curb and then does the little wheelie to go down it which is terrifying to me. I've never done that. I have anti-tip bars on my chair to uh, prevent tipping. I don't want to fall. He had to have spent some time like actually getting a feel for the wheelchair. So I, I applaud things like that. The come to Jesus moment that I said at the end is when everything is kind of going wrong at the end of the movie, it's that boy loses girl moment. And he essentially goes off on his own, assumes that he's going to get his independence and it culminates with him, I guess, sleeping outside in front of the giant Jesus at the school. I don't know how much time has passed. I've watched this movie several times, and I'm still not understanding if, like, a couple hours has passed or what. For him to have to gain independence by literally being out in the elements. That thing always strikes me as wrong. This was the early 2000s. Technology was still in its infancy, but, like, most disabled people have some modicum of how to get home. Maybe that's my own privilege talking, but I just felt like he had to sleep outside in the snow, metaphorically speaking, in order to realize that I can be an independent person. That actually was one of the few issues I had with this film, was that montage where everyone is kind of disbanded and Cassandra is taken off because she's been expelled. And you get that, what I like to call the uh, Twilight, I think it was New Moon? where Bella's, like, staring out the window for, it seems like, ages. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, Whereas like, here, you've got, so you've got that montage where, like, you know, life goes on, and they're trying to figure out, and then I think it was Roland has a line, or one of the characters has a line, and you realize it was literally 24 hours, if that, that they've all been apart. And I was like, wait a minute, how did you come to this realization of your independence and you've changed your life in a span of 24 hours? Like, they made it seem, the montage made it seem like it was a lot longer like, it was at least two weeks that all these characters went Yeah, through. that's what I was not clear about. I was like, so wait, he's been just laying out on the grass for, like, two weeks. And, and here's the thing that, that really is odd to me. Most writers don't think about it. He's laying on the grass out of the chair. And I'm just sitting there thinking, how did he 
do that like because wheelchair construction being what it is he's supposed to be paralyzed that's dead weight below your waist how did he get out let alone how the hell is he getting back in like i'm sitting there thinking nobody thinks that anybody's gonna find that odd except a person who is really disabled i like i would love to know how they envisioned him getting in and out of that thing onto the grass i mean i'm fortunate i'm not paralyzed so i'm not carrying dead weight how does that work it's called movie magic i guess well yeah movie (laughs) magic but but i think also just from a basic perspective point it gets to what we were talking about with the shorts about how cousin was more sympathetic and whole was more empathetic here it's a lot more sympathetic toward disability like getting these moments that aren't common in a lot of these kind of representations while yes the relationships are a bit chased in terms of the visuals everyone in this movie is so thirsty just i mean it's just horny 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 from start to finish with everyone i think to kind of shift gears a bit there's something that you said courtney about how everyone was pretending or had this false ideal that was being present one of the reasons i love this movie so much is i feel the opposite it really gets at how complicated it is to be a good anything in this case it happens to be a good christian but hillary fay i do not doubt her in the slightest when she throws her bible at mary and says i am filled with christ's love amongst other things she's being entirely sincere there it's complicated with what happens to her because she is such a passively hateful person you get that specific kind of christianity with her that you do see a lot in like we had said the affluent white neighborhoods and that makes one of the smallest touches one of the most poisonous but also the most accurate in that veronica has black parents but there are like no black kids at this school that's one of those details that when it comes to christian academies and private schools and things like that that is so accurate that it almost hurts to be within proximity of it but all the characters like they're just trying to be good christians it's just they're, they're all caught in these different levels of privilege that they can't reconcile with each other. What one person's version of Christianity is compared to another. That's why I love the scene where they're in the auditorium and the camera's going between each person and what they're thinking or what they're praying. And you've got Hillary Faye saying, God, I totally deserve this boy. Again, this movie is extremely thirsty. And then it cuts to Veronica, and she's like, thank you for saving me from the eternal hellfires of damnation. Also, I'm sorry about letting that promise keeper feel me up last year at the camp and so on like that. So everyone is being sincere for the most part. I think that when it gets complicated is when Mary and everyone else takes that image of Hillary and spreads it around, which is very mean. That is not a cool thing to do. Honestly, I think that Hillary is somewhat in her rights at that point to do her little framing scheme because of that. That's the kind of stuff that has led to suicide. No joke. I think it's because of the deft touch that this movie has that it doesn't get that dark. But that said, it's just, it's so complicated because that was mean to do to Hillary, but (laughs) she has been kind of an ass the whole time. This is a movie that 
wants to have a message, and and I say it's why I kind of put this in the same vein as Easy A, because both of them are ultimately about white looks at religion and religious tolerance, and this is still a predominantly white liberal look at Christianity with Veronica being the token person of color. But at the same time, none of the characters are necessarily above the other in terms of doing horrible things. Easy A is one of those that just uses Christianity for comic relief, where you can just say, oh, those crazy Christians. Neither film is necessarily good in terms of they're both saying, like, we're aiming for a liberal audience that finds these people to be somewhat crazy. It's hard not to feel that this movie has aged somewhat poorly in the, what, over 10 years since it's been out? In terms of promoting this this concept of, like, what's the right way to bully somebody? That's funny, because I, I actually thought that this film holds up surprisingly well, and especially with the way how at least America and parts of Canada here are starting to recontextualize what it is to be Christian. Like, the fact that Hillary is at a gun range to protect herself, and it's not even like the physical virginity, I think it's more of the spiritual, but she's kind of the gun-toting Christian, and, you know, I'm not going to get too political, but if you look at certain presidents who spoke at certain Christian conventions recently, and the ideals, like, a lot of it feels like what I'm seeing here, just the teen version. There's a lot to praise about this movie in terms of how it's slyly going about its message. When she's at the gun range and she's talking about her spiritual virginity and how if you're raped, essentially, that doesn't count. It ultimately goes towards showing the fact that virginity as a social construct is pointless. And there have been numerous books. Virginity is something that we use to scare girls into not having sex. It is a state of mind. And very, 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 like, 99.999, medically, it's very small. It's a very small state of being. And it's something that you also see in something like Drop Dead Gorgeous, where you also have Midwest Christian characters. And I think Denise Richards is also at a gun range in one scene. She says, Jesus loves winners. Um, So it's little things like that where... The movie may have this grand, all Christian people are gun-toting, Bible thumpers, but at the same time, it's using those grand, broad exaggerations to critique smaller things, like the fact that virginity is bullshit. Very true. And I think, Andrew, to your point, when I was talking about people not being the real selves, I feel that just looking at it as a strictly high school comedy, a lot of times when you're in high school, you're trying to fit in with whatever group and in in this case everyone is trying to live the christian life and christian values but i think a lot of it is based off of what hillary expects them to live was it tia works hard to get in into the group and, and get that little pin you know veronica gets that pin but she knows that at any point that pin can be removed like everyone's trying to please hillary and fit into her ideals of what it means to be Christian because she's apparently the uber Christian. And when you look at Mary Louise Parker's character and her relationship with Martin Donovan, Pastor Skip, how they both have ideals of what it's supposed means to be Christian, but they're conflicted. Pastor Skip is trying to convey the I'm hip, I'm down with the, the lingo, yo, pastor to, to hurt the, the youth. But then at the same time, he's got a, a crumbling marriage, is seeing a woman on the side. 
He's doing all this stuff, and then every two seconds, he's like, no, no, we've got to live the proper life. That's what it's meant to be. And it's like, they're all playing parts, and it's only when you get to the end of the film, a lot of people kind of make that decision on what parts they want to play. And yes, showing Hillary's unflattering image from her youth was bad, but so was breaking your friend's promise of not revealing that Dean is gay. She not only spread it across school, but had this big communal prayer circle for him. I think Hillary violates a lot of things to warrant some of the rebuttals she gets. I, I don't know if the movie's necessarily even aware of it, but it is from a feminist standpoint, it's hard not to see the movie as perpetuating and at the same time slyly criticizing, and it might be so subtly criticizing that it's not criticizing at all, but the concept of like white feminism because the Christian Jewels, which is the little group that Hilary Faye runs, it's predominantly white pretty girls, and the fact that Tia, Heather Matarazzo's character, wants to be in you know, I really feel for Tia yeah, um, mostly because I think Heather Matarazzo is so great. She always plays these characters that are just trying to fit in with the pretty girls and it never completely works out. She works after school. You know, she has a job in this movie and she's trying so hard to be nice. But at the same time, she's not accepted, mainly because she's socially awkward, but also because she's not conventionally pretty like the other three are. I like how the movie's kind of promoting this concept that to be the right type of Christian, you have to be aesthetically pleasing as well. Tia, one of my favorite things about her is how much of a bite she gets throughout the movie because she starts off as more of a wallflower trying to fit in and failing miserably. And there are little adjustments, like I like how, <laughs> and like in context of the character growth, but Tia dyes her hair to make it look more like Hillary's. At the same time, she keeps putting Hillary down in very subtle ways, like when Hillary is eating chocolates. Tia goes to grab one, and Hillary's like, you can't eat my chocolates. And she's like, but no one gave these to you. You bought them for yourself. They're not even real Valentine's chocolates. And it's moments like that where Tia starts to build up her spine a bit. And that's why I, I still don't think that it is more about Hillary's version of Christianity and more everyone having their own idea. Because ultimately, Tia's idea of Christianity is what changes everything around at the end. And what you're talking about, Kristen, about how this is critical of the white feminism version, well, I guess just white feminism in general, I agree with that entirely, and I also think that plays into how Pastor Skip is portrayed, because Pastor Skip hasn't gotten his divorce. He is fine betraying that aspect of Christianity because, you know, they're going to get a divorce later or whatever. But then he makes it all about himself when they find out that Mary is pregnant. Side note, another one of my absolute favorite moments about competing Christianities here is how the school, I think, secretary does her best to keep the ultrasound from Pastor Skip. I love that moment. It's it's like one of those woman-to-woman -woman connection things that she's really trying to look out for her and keep this her business. But then once Pastor Skip's involved, it's all about him. It's all about his sin. It's all about what he's been doing wrong. Oh, God is punishing us. Instead of treating Christianity like the complicated religion that it is with hundreds of offshoots and different kinds of practitioners. So, yeah, there's that. Kristen, do you have anything else? Yeah, I, I think we get everything. Just on a 
personal note, I know we've touched a lot on some of the great moments of dialogue, but I will say that Macaulay Culkin's character, Roland, he's involved in one of my favorite gags in the film when he and Sandra are sitting outside, I guess they're like a restaurant or something, and they see Mary going into the uh, Planned oh, Parenthood. God, yes. And there's a wonderful Planned Parenthood joke that has me rolling every time I hear it, and it's just delightful. The one thing that always gets me is when Cassandra parks in the handicap space and Hillary Faye comes out and says, I bet she doesn't even have a disabled placard for that car. And she goes around and she says, and I'm right. The intention is that you're supposed to side with Cassandra because, you know, she's a rebel and she's not down with the G.O.D., to quote Pastor Skiff. But at the same time, I had to side with Hillary Faye because that would have driven me insane. I'd have, Because if I had had to be in the same class as a person that I know willingly is parking in the handicapped space, I'd have been like, you bitch. You, you are horrible. <laughs> and she's triple parked on top of that. Exactly. Like, seriously, that's not helping your cause. That's something Roland should have told her. Like, please don't do that again, because that just means you're a shit human. <laughs> I, my, my, sorry, my brain is recounting several lines and moments in like, <laughs> the, the, the Valerie Bertinelli uh, film that Mary watches, and then when she goes to take the pregnancy test, and she's... Please, she's, it be cancer? Yeah, she's praying for cancer <laughs> rather than being pregnant. Like, there's so many great moments, and I think we can all agree, there's a lot to, of fun to be had with this film. The representation, as we said, has some good moments and some bad moments in terms of how it approaches disability, but at least, Andrew, I know it was a film that you didn't intend to and you doubled down <laughs> yes. on, but I'm kind of, I'm glad, I, I'm honestly glad that you picked it just for the things that it does right and i think it was enjoyable enough to have a good discussion on so thank you for that and kirsten thank you again for coming on the show where can folks find you i am on twitter at journeys underscore film you can visit my uh podcast uh, i do i do two uh classic film one called ticklish business which you can find at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com and citizen dame which you can find at citizendame.podbean.com. And most of my work is scattered all over the internet. So go to Twitter and I promote everything as it goes uh, live. And once again, if you would like to look at my GoFundMe campaign to get me to AFI, you can go to gofundme.com slash to AFI. Even though we know you're going to be on the, the next episode to discuss this theme further, you're always welcome back. And hopefully this particular topic will be one of those yearly topics because we have some topics that we like to revisit each year so if you want to come back for that and also if you want to come back oh, for yeah. just any other film discussion because seriously we love having you on so it's it's a treat oh well, thank you <laughs> andrew where can folks find you well you can find me on twitter at can't stop drew of course there's also my website can't stop the movies.com i also monitor our gmail account which is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com and if you want to help keep me fed and make the production a little better on top of that, take a look at the Can't Stop the Movies Patreon because that helps keep the roof over my head and cats fed along with me and my wife. Always important. Uh, folks can find me on Twitter at our Changing Reels Twitter account at Changing Reels AC, or you can contact me personally on Twitter at Small Mind. Thank you again for listening, and remember, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. Oh, uh, neither. That one's the odd couple. <laughs> Man, that's actually going to drive me kind of crazy that I... Oh, of course. Dragnet's... Da, 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 da.
Da, 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 da.